This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no need to renew your subscription. This is Fate in the 50s. Fate Magazine, the little digest-sized paranormal mag that's been published for an implausibly long time. I have a feeling most of you out there have at least read a copy of Fate at one time or another, or maybe just seen it. For over 70 years, Fate has been a fairly consistent feature of paranormal publishing, a field that's pretty remarkably inconsistent. One of our listeners requested a Fate Magazine episode, so I thought we'd concentrate on the 1950s. Then I realized, since it started in 1948, we might as well start there. So... Let's start there. So, some history of fate, which we've looked at in some other episodes, but just as a refresher, it all starts with Ray Palmer, pulp magazine editor who brought us Richard Shaver in The Hollow Earth, brought that to the sci-fi world in the 1940s. And as you may remember, this met with a mixed response, and, and Palmer left Amazing's mixed response editorially and critically, massively popular response financially, let's make that clear. But mixed response from management and Palmer left amazing stories and established the venerable fate magazine in 1948, along with Curtis Fuller by the early fifties relations between Palmer and Fuller were strained, at least partially because of Fuller's much more conservative approach to the UFO mystery as, as opposed to Palmer's broader approach, which included publicizing the stories of various UFO contactees. In 1953, Palmer sells his shares of fate to the Fuller family and starts a competitor, Mystic Magazine. Palmer, who, as you probably know, had gotten a start in the pulp sci-fi and fantasy magazine field, also published Other Worlds Science Stories, which became Flying Saucers from Other Worlds, which then jettisoned the fiction altogether and became Flying Saucers, the magazine of space conquest. By the end of the 1950s, fate would increase its flying saucer content uh, as well, but at least in the 1950s issues I've seen, these are often dwarfed by the number of more general paranormal and supernatural articles. This was even the case when the cover was devoted to saucers. So given the subject of this entire podcast, we'll be concentrating on the flying saucer tales that Fate published during these early years, even after Palmer leaves. But we'll begin with the very first issue, spring 1948, and the magazine's and Ray Palmer's kind of mission statement. Fate is a new kind of magazine. It was conceived several years ago, vaguely and imperfectly, in the minds of its editors. Through the intervening years of research, study, experience, analysis, debate, planning, and just plain hard work, the concept went on. Until today, it lies in your hands, a modest but energetic young magazine dedicated to the earnest, thinking people of all races and walks of life. It is a magazine devoted to the defense of reason. It is a bringing out into the open of the real kinship between fate and free will. It is a magazine dedicated to the scientific method, the calm analysis of the known and the unknown. It is a magazine for the logical man, the religious man, for the doubtful man, for the observing man, and above all, for the man who wants to know the answers to those greatest of all questions. Why was I born? Where am I going? Who and what am I? Fate lets you do your own thinking, confining its efforts solely to supplying the material upon which your ability to think can be directed, with the ultimate decision your own. Your own decision is the correct one. Your own decision is the correct one. Well, doesn't that just sum up the whole UFO problem in a nutshell? I'm not mad about it, but it is sort of hilariously at odds with those who persist in claiming a scientific approach. You know, the, the truth is whatever you think it is. That's more fun, actually. I like Palmer's approach. A good portion of the premiere issue is taken up with the, the wave of flying saucer sightings I should go back to that. Um, the decision, your own decision is the correct one. It is at odds with the, the sort of scientific approach. This is 1948. This, the, the whole science spiritual divide in the UFO thing is, is not necessarily a thing yet. So I just want to make sure you know that I know that. 
So the premier issue, most of it's taken up with the wave of flying saucer sightings that have been going on in 1947 and 1948, including a story from Kenneth Arnold about his landmark encounter. After providing a summary of it, Arnold says the following. I look at this whole affair as not something funny as some people have made it out to be. To me, it is highly serious, and since I evidently did observe something, at least, that Mr. John Doe on the street corner or Pete Andrews on the ranch has never heard about, is no reason that it does not exist. Even though I openly invited an investigation by the Army and the FBI as to the authenticity of my story, or a mental and physical examination as to my capabilities, I received no interest from these two important protective forces of our country until two weeks after my observation. I will go so far as to assume that if our military intelligence was not aware of what I observed and reported to the United and Associated Press and over the radio on two different occasions, which apparently set the nation buzzing, they would be the very first people I could expect as visitors. I've always appreciated Arnold's serious approach to all this, and you, you might have noticed, or at least you will as we go along, we're still in that very brief honeymoon period where the extraterrestrial hypothesis has not quite yet taken taken over completely. In another article about the 4748 sightings, we get this report. On July 7th, William H. Rhodes of Phoenix, Arizona, snapped two pictures of a flying disc circling over the city. He turned these pictures over to the Arizona Republic, Phoenix newspaper, which published them on page one of the July 9th edition. These pictures were not merely dots in a negative, but showed the definite shape of the flying discs and revealed that they had a hole or bright spot in the center. There were a great many witnesses, some of whom later said when asked that the photos were reproductions of the objects they had seen in the skies. Here was proof positive that these objects were not just spots before the eyes, but actual flying disks of an aeronautical design unrecognizable by experts. Those pictures never reached any other newspapers. Why? They were the hottest news in the world on July 9th. On July 10th, complete silence descended over the saucer story. Was it because the flying disks were a military secret? So were they a military secret? John C. Ross, in his article in that issue, What Were the Donuts? Mmm, donuts. Thinks not. Indeed, the subtitle of the article gives the whole thing away. It's, What Were the Donuts? A competent analysis of military aircraft proves it would be difficult to confuse them with flying disks. It's an interesting overview, actually, of some of the more experimental aircraft that the military were working on at the time with some great pictures. Now, one could argue that there were probably more advanced craft being worked on that the military wasn't, you know, providing photographs of to newspaper writers and magazine journalists, but still, you know, pretty interesting. Actually, you know, the whole question of, you know, is this strange thing that doesn't necessarily act like an aircraft really a, an experiment that our military is working on? That hasn't changed, has it? I mean, I'm still having these discussions with people. If you go on, um, if you go on hashtag UFO Twitter on Twitter, uh, you'll see the same thing sort of sort of pop up. So as we uh, as we move on to winter 1949, volume one, number four, the most interesting uh, to me uh, thing in this issue is that Palmer's editorial addresses the 1948 presidential election. Now you might not remember that oh, 1948 presidential election and that was 30 years before i was born 40 years before i was born 50 years before i was born um this is the one probably the, the only thing people ever remember about it is uh the newly re-elected or elected for the first time in his own right harry truman holding up the uh, the newspaper that says uh, the chicago newspaper that says dewey defeats truman because the uh, the chicago paper had jumped the gun on the uh, the headline and and gone with what most of the pundits and pollsters were saying about the election palmer addresses this in his editorial now that the presidential election is over we've heard all the alibis of the experts and the pollsters and the analysts as to why they all missed the boat so tremendously in our humble opinion, they've missed the boat again in their protestations. None of them has thought of the true explanation. None of them has thought to give the American voter the credit for having done some thinking of his own. Perhaps some voters were readers of fate, and not the type of people whose thinking is prepared for them in advance by those who prepare the propaganda barrages. St. John warned us about the beast and its greatest weapon, propaganda. It would seem that the sharp edge of propaganda is no longer so sharp. 
Some of us don't believe everything we read and hear. We weigh it. In this election, the American people made the decision and absolutely ignored the hypnolic lulling of the loudmouthed gentlemen who have been priding themselves on their ability to sway the masses. So we're looking at fatalism here. We're looking past fatalism here, right? Odd for a magazine called Fate. And we're doing some heavy flattering of fate readers, aren't we? Um, You're too smart to have fallen for that. The greatest weapon of the beast of revelation being propaganda is an interesting take. I assume he's talking about the second beast, the false prophet, rather than the first beast, which is the, the fellow with seven heads. Still, it's a nice touch. Palmer also takes aim at astrology in terms of the election and more generally. Just before election day, we went out and bought all the astrology magazines we could find. And we note, especially, that the stars were very emphatic on one thing, the election of Mr. Dewey. We hope they will pardon us if fate looks upon them with a sly little grin. Might it not be true that, after all, they are just stars and never intended to order our lives and our thinking, but actually, if they were personalities, would be loyal readers of fate? Apparently, what is written in the stars can be erased. If the stars were people, they'd read fate. That's outstanding. One last thing from this issue, an ad for an organization that I would be proud to join. Adventure in the unknown. Do you crave real excitement? Do you think the frontiers of adventure are gone forever? Do you wish you could actually participate in dangerous ventures into a little-known world? These thrills can be your own. In September 1944, one of the strangest mysteries of our modern times began. It began in an obscure pulp magazine with the publishing of a letter concerning an ancient alphabet of a language man has long forgotten. It was written by a Pennsylvania welder who claimed it was the mother tongue of all languages. His statement was challenged instantly, and as instantly found to be incredibly difficult to assail. For the alphabet worked. It worked on all languages to a degree that precluded mere chance, and the more ancient the language used to test it, the higher percentage of consistency. Then began an astounding series of events that came to be known as the Shaver Mystery, after the alphabet's discoverer. Now you can be a member. Join the Shaver Mystery Club. The Shaver Mystery Club. Um, there are some newsletters or mags from the Shaver Mystery Club out there. There's also um, much later Shavertron, which was the uh, the sort of official Richard Shaver fan magazine. I've got one of the bound uh, sort of sort of giant paperback size uh, reprints of that. It's interesting, interesting stuff. And now into the 1950s with the April 1951 issue. The cover story is decidedly unparanormal, but is actually pretty typical for fate. Uh, The Hula, Sacred Dance of the South Seas. Yes, indeed. A full moon is rising over the palm trees. Softly, the evening breeze carries the dull sound of water thrashing over the distant reef. The broad leaves whisper, and beyond the edge of the atoll village, naked feet tread the narrow ribbon of beach. The drums start their rapid beat, and the singers their chant. The song begins with the exciting, erotic chant of the old-time Polynesians. It is nearly tuneless, rapid, with a complex chorus of good, strong voices singing it out. Around a circle, the young people of the village are dancing, now side by side, now face to face, and always two together. They are dancing an ancient love dance, and they woo each other not with face and voice alone, as in Western custom, but with hands, feet, knees, hips, shaking and revolving in a universal language of love. For hours, they dance, and as the moon begins to lower into the western sky, the dancers drift away from the circle and melt into the palm groves, to waiting mats or leafy houses. The tinkling of their laughter blends into the sounds of the night as they make love. In many atolls of the South Pacific, the old customs prevail, and the love dances of the young, unmarried Polynesians are still held almost nightly. There is a reason for this. In the lesser-traveled reaches of Polynesia, where the white man's civilization is not yet advanced, the dances are really mating dances. The young, unmarried boys and girls meet and dance and love. Eventually, when they have found a mate, they live together and settle down. Yeah, it, it is that. Hula is that. But it's it's so much more. And yes, I did go down the, the rabbit hole of, of Hula history a bit. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to get into it uh, in any depth, just to say that the the mating ritual aspects of it are um, only one thing that, uh, that that sort of goes into the hula tradition. And like, uh, and like many sort of 
ancient or indigenous um, activities. It's been, been sort of remade and, and reinterpreted in the more recent past by, uh, by, by people. Um, but this is something that fate does. It, it sort of engages in, I, I'm not sure what to call it, pop anthropology, I guess is, is probably the best way to, uh, to look at it. Um, we're going to close this episode with uh, another piece of, of uh, pop anthropology crossed with cryptozoology from, uh, from the magazine. We also, in this issue, have some historical UFO cases. It's about a thousand years of, it's called, it's called, it's called a thousand years of UFOs uh, by author Harold T. Wilkins. Uh, and here's a case uh, from the United States from the 18th century. New England, USA had a turn on May 10th, 1760, when a most remarkable object like a blazing sphere appeared in the broad light of day. Over Roxbury and Bridgewater, the thing went round in a circle, and a noise as of working machinery came from it. It threw out so powerful a light that even in strong sunshine it cast a shadow. The circle over which it flew had a diameter of 80 miles. And we have some ads as well. I I love these ads. Um, This one will grant you staggering spiritual power. A staggering spiritual power is demonstrating and manifesting through cosmology, the spiritual religion of action based upon spiritual phenomena and scientific truth. Now you can learn the principles of cosmology in the quiet and privacy of your own home. Information free upon request. Cosmology Incorporated, P.O. Box 821, Route 1, Emmett, Idaho. This is, just so you know, cosmology spelled with a K, which makes it um, different than just the basic concept of cosmology and also trademarkable. And then there's there's this ad, which seems like an odd one for this magazine, uh, for, for this magazine's subject, but it appeared in every episode or every episode, every issue for several years, as far as I could tell. Photos of Rudolph Valentino, the great lover, first immortal of the movies. A limited opportunity for the many fans who will always cherish memories of the romantic Valentino and his dynamic personality. Now you can acquire a living photograph of the most colorful and fabulous personality ever developed by motion pictures. Beautifully finished 8x10 portraits of Rudolph Valentino in all of his famous roles, $1 each. Illustrated folders sent free with first order. 100 different poses. Barker Studio, 1457 East 5th Street, Chicago 37, Illinois. A limited opportunity. Yes, limited to the number of photographs they would be able to sell. Um, I know almost nothing about Rudolph Valentino, except that he was immortal, I guess, and the great lover. I do have a relative who had a cat named Rudy that she had named after Rudolph Valentino, though. So that is um, that is the extent of my Rudolph Valentino knowledge. And we also have a, um, a reader submission, and fate really does a good job of including lots of reader submissions about weird things they've experienced. This one is, this one's interesting. A sky sled. When I was a child of about 12, we lived on a farm. Our back porch faced the east and I was sitting there shelling peas for our noon meal. The sun was shining brightly. For some reason, I looked toward the field, and there came a toboggan-shaped vehicle, rising upward from the field. It had two persons in it. The one toward me was a woman with long white gown and flowing yellow hair. They were both standing in the sleigh facing north. It climbed until it was about 500 feet from the ground. In order not to make any noise, I ran into the kitchen to tell my mother to come and look. But when she came out, the sleigh was gone. What was it? And why was I shown such a beautiful thing? Mrs. Lewis Erickson, Coos Bay. Oregon. I like that it ends with the question, uh, not only what was it, but why was she shown it? I, th- I think that I'm a sucker for the sort of personal aspect to it. And uh, questions like that sort of lend a quality to these, uh, these, these personal reader sightings that you don't get with, um, with reprints of newspaper stories. There's also a fairly lengthy article on well-known New Age and less well-known historical figure, the Comte Saint-Germain, or Count Saint-Germain, as we pronounce it here in the Midwest, and uh, how I always pronounce it. Apparently, he had lived for hundreds, even thousands of years, and may yet be alive. A man who had known and talked with Cyrus the Great, Jesus, Dante, Michelangelo, Charles V, and countless others down through the ages. 
we find a man who apparently could transmute baser metals into pure gold and transform valueless stones into rare and perfect gems. And one of the things that the Count St. Germain was able to, uh, to, to, to see with his knowledge was the beginning of the French Revolution or the coming of the French Revolution. Thus, in those perilous days preceding the French Revolution, we find him the constant advisor and confidant of Louis XV, Marie Antoinette, and Madame de Pompadour. He accurately predicted to them the revolution and the days of terror, and although he deplored the suffering, bloodshed, and injustices ahead, he sought to make them understand the inevitability and great necessity for the changes as part of the spiritual evolution of mankind. I'm not entirely sure why the French Revolution was necessary for the the spiritual evolution of mankind. I, I find that very often the people who talk about the spiritual or cosmic or consciousness evolution of, of humankind are, are, are really pretty quick to dismiss the horrors of the kinds of wars or natural disasters that are supposed to bring these things about. One thing that I, I thought was interesting about this article uh, about uh, Saint-Germain was uh, that there was no mention of Guy Ballard or the uh, the IM movement, that uh, that be, sort of spiritual um, movement or group that began with Guy Ballard meeting this fella on the side of the mountain when he was hiking at Mount Shasta back in the 1930s. You'd think, you know, it only being like 20 years before that uh, less than that, that, um, that, that would get a mention, although that might've counted as free advertising for the IM, uh, crew. So that's probably why they didn't do it. One last ad. This is for a novel that sounds really weird. Kinsman of the Dragon by Stanley Mullen. Every occultist will recognize its hidden truths. Here is a book of deep mystic significance told against a fictional background to lessen the shock of hidden meaning, the mystery of the ancient druids, the prophecy hidden in legend, the existence of another world, invisible beside our own, a terrible psychic threat toward a third world war. A few of the book's chapter headings will give you some idea of the tremendous scope of the story. Trail of the Wizard. Votaries of Yis, Darla of the Sea Green Eyes, City of the Sorcerers, Captives of the Great Dimension, the Seven Sisters of Light, the Morning After Eternity, the White Archdruid in the Grotto of the Lizard, Vor in the Onyx Key, the Place of Thunders, the Black Tower, 26 great chapters in all, from Venture Books, P.O. Box 671, Evanston, Illinois. You may have seen the illustration that accompanies it. I, I threw it up on Instagram and, and Twitter and, and such. It's um, it's a mermaid, a topless mermaid, holding a weird key thing, riding a dragon. It's it's wild, but it's a novel, so it can be as weird as it wants. And I need to get my hands on this book. I think I want to learn about the Arch Druid. Next time, we're going to return to a fellow we've discussed a bit here and there. Dr. Richard J. Boylan. No, we're not going to talk about happy, smiley abductions and hot tubs will get only a fleeting mention. No, the focus will be on his efforts at intergalactic diplomacy. Yes, indeed. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. You can also support us through the link in the show notes. Thanks very much to those who've donated in the past, and we really appreciate it. Despite the fact that donations have... Uh, removed my last reason not to buy books written by Richard J. Dolan. As always, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, and you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. We got some interesting mail that I will be uh, talking about a bit in coming episodes. Um, yes. So the Saucer Life is, as always, available anywhere you can find uh, you can find podcasts also available at Musicland and Sam Goody at your local mall we are not actually available at Musicland or Sam Goody or anywhere else at your local mall but for some reason I thought about saying that and decided not to take it out 
Okay, so we are back from our little intermission. It's later in 1951 now. The November-December issue, as fate speeds up publication from its original quarterly schedule, going uh, going into an every two months, six a year schedule. And uh, and and there, there's an ad, but this ad is is re- I love the ads, and it's relevant to our our lifestyle here. Become a doctor of psychology, win the degree of PhD, teach the secret of contentment happiness, solve mental worries, experience the revelation of truth, chartered college, individual help, write for free book, College of Universal Truth, 5131M North Clark Street, Chicago 40, Illinois. I'm not entirely sure, but I am 80% sure that the College of Universal Wisdom, or Universal Truth rather, is one of those outfits that was probably the alma mater of at least one flying saucer fiend who made a lot of money calling himself doctor from the 1950s or 60s. Next, from the February-March 1952 issue, we have a real interesting story. And this one goes off the, the fate track a little bit because I did some digging and I sort of fell down a, 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 a quagmire with this. The Steep Rock Flying Saucer. This was reprinted from the Steep Rock Echo, the company magazine of Steep Rock Iron Mines Limited of Ontario, Canada. The story also appeared in several Canadian newspapers. The editor, B.J. Ayton, who delightfully was also the chief chemist for the mining company, told Fate the following as an introduction. I cannot verify the story one way or the other. It was written by a senior employee of the mine. However, about that time, flying saucers were seen by a number of people in this locality. Men in groups working in the mine at Steep Rock saw them at night, and many residents of the town of Atacoan gave eyewitness accounts of the saucers. They were seen in different localities all the way from here to the lakeland cities of Port William and Port Arthur, 140 miles away. One was flashed by Canadian National Railway Station operators all along the line until it reached here. Then it turned back again. There was not the slightest doubt in the minds of eyewitnesses that what they had seen were flying saucers. According to the witness who wrote into the Steep Rock Echo, this took place at dusk on July 2nd, 1950. The man and his wife were fishing, and suddenly they felt the air vibrate like a shockwave. His first thought was that there had been some mine-related blasting going on, and they realized there wouldn't be any blasting where they were. He climbs up a ridge and looks down at the nearby bay. Looking through a cleft in the rock, I could see a large, shiny object resting on the water in the curve of the far shoreline, not a quarter of a mile across the top of the narrows. I made a dive back to where my wife was. She took one look at me and said, what's wrong? I tried to be calm and told her of what I had seen. We both climbed back up and looked out through the opening. It was still there. It looked like two saucers stuck together, one upside down on top of the other. Round, black-edged ports appeared to be about four feet apart around the edge. As the bottom was resting on the water, or close to it, it was impossible for us to see the underside. The top had what looked like hatch covers open, and moving around over its surface were about ten queer-looking little fellas. Rotating slowly from a central position and about eight feet in the air was a hoop-shaped object. As it rotated to a point directly opposite us, it stopped. So did the figures. Everything seemed to concentrate on the opening we looked through. We instinctively ducked at that moment. Looking over my right shoulder to see how fast we could get down, I caught a movement in the bushes. Beyond us, on the upward side of the cove, a deer came out to the water's edge and stood there. We took another peek. Figures and circle were pointed at the deer. As the circle began to move to the left, we ducked, counted twenty, and peeked again. The thing was circling and the figures moving, and every time it passed the deer, it kept on as if they were quite happy about it. Then we ducked. We believe to this day that we were shielded from the ray or whatever it was by the wall of rock we ducked behind. It's the Canadian Roswell. The author goes on to describe the figures in more detail. We could then see that the whole thing seemed to be operated from a central point below the circling ray by a figure on a small stand. This figure had a red skull cap on, or maybe paint. All the other caps were dark blue. These figures I estimated to be roughly three feet six inches to four feet high, and all were the same size. All were dressed the same, with a shiny metallic substance over the chest, while the legs and arms were of a darker material. It was impossible to see their faces, if they had any. It looked like blank surface to me. So he couldn't see their faces, or they didn't have faces, which seems 
less than clear. The witness also describes their movements. The most notable thing was that they moved like automatons, and they did not turn around, that is, right around. They just changed the direction of their feet. Walking on the angle of the surface, the leg on the high side seemed to go shorter so that they did not walk with a limp. I watched one of these figures pick up the end of a hose, a very vivid green, lift it while facing one way, and start off to walk the other. During all this, a very quiet hum filled the air, and they seemed to be drawing in water and discharging just as much. Whether they were extracting something from the water, I can't say. The saucer people are behaving oddly, aren't they? What are they doing with the water? Or to the water? The witness and his wife leave, not wanting to return, but the man does return. He takes a friend along, and they see the saucer again with the little creatures. They try to take pictures, but they can't get to their cameras before the little guys jump in the saucer and take off. In closing the article, there's another little section from Aiton, the editor-slash-chemist. Some months ago, a steep rock fisherman who goes up to the floodwaters to Sawmill Lake quite frequently mentioned casually to the editor a couple of things which seemed at the time to be particularly unimportant. However, in view of the flying saucer account, they might be worth passing on. He said that one night, returning home during the floodwaters in the dusk, he saw what he thought was a meteorite streak down in the direction of Sawmill Bay and disappear. He also remarked upon the queer fluorescent greenish color in one of the inlets in Upper Sawmill Bay, where he was fishing one afternoon. He wondered if the coloration was due to some peculiar mineral in the vicinity. He said he didn't catch any fish there at all, though they were biting everywhere else in the lake. Another frequenter of the same floodwaters wrote as follows. When I was leaving Sawmill Bay in the dusk one evening, I heard a sound like the noise a flock of ducks make, and at the same time, what I thought was a shooting star flash across the bay. He goes on to say that a week later, while fishing in one of the coves, he noticed the water had a curious greenish tinge, and he was mystified to find a number of dead fish floating around in the water. Man, multiple witnesses? Green stuff? Maybe somebody took a sample and gave it to the editor-slash-chemist for analysis. This is interesting. So this is in a mining company magazine. Gets reprinted by fate. Then... The story shows up in Harold T. Wilkins's book, Flying Saucers on the Attack, which was published in 1954. Wilkins said that it was published in the, the Echo, and then he reprints it, complete with an introduction from the editor, just like in Fate. Now, Wilkins doesn't mention that Fate published the story. And let's be honest, unless Wilkins was a fan of mining company magazines, Fate is probably where he encountered this story. So he says it's from the mining magazine, but it's different than it was republished in Fate different enough that it's noticeable, similar enough that it's clearly adapted from the fate version. Just as an example, here is the comparable section where the fishing couple first sees the craft. Now, this is the Wilkins version, and sort of mentally compare it to what the fate version had been. I was amazed at what I saw. As I peered through the cleft, taking care to make no noise, I could see out on the bay a large, shining object resting on the water. It was in the curve of the shoreline, about a quarter of a mile away, across the top end of some narrows. I got down from the cleft and sped back to my wife. She was startled as I came running up. Why, what on earth is the matter, she asked. Come and see if you see what I see, I said, grasping her by the arm, and make no noise or show yourself. I drew her by the hand to the cleft. We both peered through it. The shining thing was resting upon the water. It looked like two saucers, one upside down on top of the other. Round the edge were holes like black ports, spaced about four feet apart. We could not see the underside because the bottom of the thing was resting on the water, or close to it. On top were what looked like open hatches, and moving around over its surface were ten little figures. They looked queer, very queer. Rotating slowly from a central position and about eight feet up in the air was a hoop-shaped object. As it rotated to a point directly opposite to where my wife and I were peering through the rock cleft, it stopped, and the little figures also stopped moving. Everything now seemed concentrated on the little opening through which we were peering. We were about to duck down, as we thought these midget figures might see us and take alarm, when on the opposite side of the cove a deer appeared, came to the edge of the water, and stood motionless. We again peered through the cleft in the rock. The little figures in the previously rotating circle were aligned on the deer, but now the circle moved to the left. We ducked down, counted twenty, and took another peep. The thing was gyrating and the figures moving, but the deer didn't seem to trouble them. 
We ducked down, supposing that a ray had been projected toward the rock from the thing in the water. Maybe the rock was a barrier and kept it off us. See, it's different. It's it's the same basic story, and some of the phrases are the same, but overall, it's been it's it's been altered a bit. Um, a dozen years later, in 1966, Frank Edwards covers the tale in his book Flying Saucer's Serious Business. It's an impressive story. I mean, this is a, a really interesting, detailed story. And it's impressive enough that Jacques Vallée used it as one of the cases in the appendix to Passport to Magonia. Steep Rock Lake, Canada. In a story strangely similar to that of Mr. Keel, August 1914, Case 40, a man and his wife saw a double saucer with portholes and a rotating antenna come to rest on the surface of the lake. Ten figures, 1.20 meters tall, dressed in shiny clothing, emerged and walked on deck like robots, changing direction without turning their bodies. Their faces could not be seen. One of them wore a red cap, had darker arms and legs, and seemed to be their chief. He immersed a hose into the lake, then took off. Fishermen later reported a green moss forming on the lake. So the green tinge noted in the fate version becomes moss, and we lose the mention of the dead fish. This is because Valet used Wilkins account rather than the one in fate. And because he puts a little in-text citation that it's from Wilkins and Wilkins describes not water that had quote, a fluorescent greenish color, but rather water that had quote, a fluorescent sediment. We're playing a game of telephone here. The story gets changed down the line, which is weird because it's in print. You can read it. It's not muttered in your ear by some kid. Now, thanks to the internet and Canadians who are interested in history, I was able to read the story as it was published in the Steep Rock Echo. And guess what? It's word for word what the fate version is. The fate version is the straight reprint. So Wilkins took this and sort of gussied it up for his book and Valet summarized based on what Wilkins had written without bothering to look at the original account. Otherwise, why would Valet have cited Wilkins rather than Fate or the Steep Rock Echo? One more thing about the Steep Rock saucer landing. It was a joke. In 1974, a UFO researcher named Robert Badgley wrote to the head of Steep Rock Mining asking about the sighting. The response was, quote, the story was entirely fictitious and written solely for the amusement of our somewhat isolated community. Chris Rutkowski, a Canadian re- uh, researcher, UFO researcher who's cataloged more cases than anybody in that country, uh, wrote about it in his book, The Canadian UFO Report, Best Cases Revealed, devotes a whole chapter to it, noting, quote, apparently no one made any attempt to investigate the story, end quote, and explained the fictitious nature of it. He does, however, provide an interesting counterpoint mentioning continued belief in the story by a contactee-oriented publication. He points us to a 1993 issue of the text-based internet zine Revelations of Awareness, the New Age Cosmic Newsletter, which fortunately is still out there on the internet. Um, The headline, I, I looked this up, the headline is Strange Alien Incident in Canada, How Aliens Use Our Water. Someone had written it and said they had read the story in Raymond Fowler's book, The Watchers. Was it accurate, they asked the newsletter? This was the response, channeled from an entity called The Awareness. This awareness indicates that this appears to be valid. This awareness indicates that it appears the ship was transferring fluid from within the ship, giving out what might be referred to as a kind of sewage on the one hand, and taking in a certain amount of water on the other hand. It appears that this was circulating or replacing water of one type that had been overused and taking in fresh seawater. It does not see anything other than this as a purpose for this action. There are certain chemicals that are taken from the seawater and used in the ship for various reasons and purposes, as well as the use of the water after the chemicals have been extracted. Well, yeah. And I don't think it was seawater, but that's what they said. So... Yes, we are far away from fate, far afield at this point, but it had been a little while since I'd looked at Raymond Fowler's stuff, which is focused on Betty, Andreas, and Luca's alien abduction experience. And I was curious as to why he was talking about the Steep Rock landing story. So I looked it up, and this is how Fowler describes things. Another fascinating aspect of the last recorded segment of Betty's experience was her description of the aliens drawing water from the lake into one of the crafts by means of colored and translucent hoses. I wondered whether or not such an event had been reported before. 
I searched my files and found a number of cases where UFOs had been reported hovering over or resting on ponds and lakes. However, I only found one case that bore a striking resemblance to the water-drawing operation that Betty had been privileged to witness. The case was mentioned in an internal newspaper published by the Steep Rock Iron Company, Ontario, Canada. In the September 1950 issue of the Steep Rock Echo, its editor, Mr. B.J. Ayton, stated that he had been unable either to verify or disprove the story given the company newspaper by an anonymous employee. He printed it because there were a number of well-witnessed UFO sightings being reported in the area at the time. I love, and by love I mean hate if I'm honest, the way Fowler gives the very strong impression that he recalled this case from his reading of the Steep Rock Echo newsletter. It was, you know, it's in his files. The version he extensively quotes from following that, uh, however, is the Wilkins rewriting, not the original that appeared in Echo and subsequently in Fate. Again, we're in a situation where no one, besides Badgley in 74, seems to have done anything but take this story at face value which is sort of a perennial problem, right? We should probably get back to Fate magazine at this point. In the November 1954 issue, there is this interesting story about a sighting from a passenger jet. A British airliner was flying from New York City to London when the crew saw a strange object. Here's what the pilot had to say. At 105 GMT today, about 150 nautical miles southwest of Goose Bay, height 19,000 feet, flying in clear weather above a layer of low stratus cloud, I noticed on our port beam a number of dark objects at approximately the same altitude as our aircraft. I drew the attention of the first officer, Lee Boyd, to them. He said he had just noticed them also. I jokingly said that they reminded me of flak bursts. He agreed. It then became apparent that they were moving along on a track roughly parallel to ours and keeping station with us. The first officer then called Goose Approach and asked if there were any aircraft in our area. They said no. During this time, the shape of the large object changed slightly. Also, the positions of the smaller ones relative to the big ones. Some moved ahead, some behind. The first officer then told Goose what we were watching and they said they would send a fighter to investigate. The shape of the large one continually changed, but its position relative to us did not, always about 90 degrees to port. The distance from us appeared not less than five miles, possibly very much more. During this time, both engineers, both navigators, the radio officer, two stewards, and the stewardess watched it, and all of us agreed on its shape. The number of small objects accompanied it, usually six were visible, and all were agreed that we had never seen anything like it before. At about 0120, the fighter reported that he was approaching us. The objects immediately began to grow indistinct until only one was visible. They grew smaller and finally disappeared, still at the same bearing to us. And here is what the first officer had to say about this strange encounter. It was the greatest thrill of my life. I'm willing to swear that what we saw was something solid, something maneuverable, and something that was being controlled intelligently. And the navigator? I am absolutely convinced that the objects we saw were a base ship of some kind with a number of satellites linked with it. And finally, the flight attendant weighs in. It was the most exciting sight I've ever seen, but a little creepy. I was making tea when I saw the objects. The big one was constantly changing its shape and size, one minute like a cigar, then an orange, then a mushroom. The smaller ones kept changing formation, but not their shape. Every one of us was far too intrigued to be afraid. The objects appeared to be not less than five miles away. It was difficult to assess their size because there was nothing in the sky at the time to measure them against. We are quite certain that these machines were in flight and were something solid. This is a fascinating story, and I would have gone down this rabbit hole as well, except all my time was taken up by looking into the steep rock flying saucer landing. Also in this issue is a piece by Royal Air Force um, Air Chief Marshal Dowding on the UFO subject. Dowding was in charge of fighter command during the Battle of Britain. He is like the air guy, right? So any opinion on the UFO subject from him is going to be a big deal. And even today, um, Dowding's just existence as somebody who was interested in the subject, who held that position in the military, is, uh, is a talking point among UFO enthusiasts. Here's Air Chief Marshal Dowding. I have never seen a flying saucer, and yet I believe they exist. 
I have never seen Australia, and yet I believe that Australia also exists. My belief in both cases is based upon cumulative evidence in such quantity that, for me at any rate, it brings complete conviction. This brings me to the most important thing which I have to say. It is to give a warning against attempts to open fire either with guns or aeroplanes on these objects. Looked at from the purely selfish aspect, such gratuitous folly might well turn neutral curiosity into active hostility, and it may be assumed that those who visit us from outer space can well look after themselves and will have the means of making us sorry that we compelled them to defend themselves. But it is not on this note that I wish to finish. It seems possible that for the first time in recorded history, intelligible communication on the physical level may become possible between the Earth and other planets of the solar system. Such a prospect is epoch-making in the literal sense of the word, and we should be guilty of criminal folly if we were to do anything to hinder a contact which may well bring untold blessings to a distraught humanity. Now, this is interesting because he's, he's not saying they're necessarily extraterrestrial. He doesn't say he knows exactly what they are, but he's seen enough that he's pretty sure it's not from this world, and therefore we should be very careful how we go about it. It's an ETH-friendly point of view, but it's not so over the top that you just sort of roll your eyes and move on to somebody who's making a little bit more sense. It's, it's a sensible position to take. There's also a reader submission in here titled UFO Mothership. I work nights and usually take a walk around noon. On May 27, 1955, I was striding along, watching the path in front of me, when suddenly the sun seemed to go behind a cloud. That immediately struck me as strange, for it was a bright, hot day without a cloud in the sky. I looked up and saw a huge object suspended about 2,000 feet in the air. It seemed to be the size of an ocean liner. It was not a blimp because I'm familiar with them, and this object was entirely too large. It made no sound, released no smoke, just hung suspended. It was oval in shape, colored black, silver, and red, and seemed to have windows. I looked at it for at least three minutes, too scared to move. Then I heard a car coming and flagged the motorist. When I looked at the sky again, the object was gone. It disappeared in the few seconds I took my eyes off it. I told the motorist what I had seen, and he said he, his wife, and his mother had seen exactly the same type of object at Palermo, California two years before. He thought the object might have been connected with the Brush Creek Flying Saucer incident. We discussed my experience for an hour and a half at the side of the road and concluded that what I had seen was a mothership. At 9 a.m. on June 4th, 1955, I saw the object again. This time, my mother and father also saw it. We were at our home in Oroville. The object appeared to be at the same height as before and was moving toward the east. It was visible for about five minutes. My mother, remarking that seeing is believing, said that in all her 55 years on Earth, she had never seen anything like that moving object. Dad said the same. Bob Wright, Oroville, California. I don't know why they just sort of say, "Well, we, I think it's a mothership." It, it just seems like a like a like a jump, right? But uh, the Brush Creek incident is a little much to go into here, and we'll probably have an episode on it at some point in the not too distant future. And before we finish up, I want to share with you one more ad. Fairy crosses. These unusual good luck charms are perfect cross-shaped stones found in Virginia mountains. About one inch overall, they are reddish-brown, mounted with gold-plated eyes for wear as watch charms or pendants. Two types are available, Roman and Maltese. Specify shape you wish when ordering. Price only $1 each postpaid. The Venture Bookshop, P.O. Box 671, Evanston, Illinois. You can't hardly take this seriously because they spelled fairy F-A-I-R-Y instead of the the way that fairy is supposed to be spelled F-A-E-R-I-E. Everybody knows that. Stupid casuals ruining fairy crosses for everybody who doesn't take this stuff seriously. It's really frustrating, right? Anyway, alas, I bet they don't even put a K on the end of magic. A last story. This one from 1959. No UFOs, but some of the pop anthropology that made fate great. As we answer the question posed on the cover of this, uh, this issue, are nude Tibetan llamas the monstrous, abominable snowmen of the Himalayas? The man was almost nude at a time when the nomads and I were wearing fur coats. He was of medium height, about five foot seven inches, very thin and bony, and obviously a member of the Tibetan race, although his skin was deeply tanned. Long, unkempt hair was falling into his eyes and on his shoulders, but there was no abnormal growth of hair on his body. 
He was standing there and looking up into the sky, his thin, torn breech clout, which the nomads told me he only put on when he was visiting them, was fluttering in the wind. I fetched my camera immediately, but when I reappeared and motioned to the stranger to face the camera, he made violent signs of disapproval. I asked the always helpful Prince of the Thousand to negotiate permission, but the prince refused under some pretext. Only later did I learn that no nomad would dare ask the man to do anything which he obviously did not want to do. The man's benediction, I was told, was essential for the tribe's well-being, and his ire and curse would bring great disaster. The will of the nude lama is holy, the prince later told me. Sexually, they are entirely chaste. Reports that snowmen have attacked women in desolate regions are sheer fiction. Summing up, I have not the slightest doubt that these nude llamas are identical with the abominable snowmen we have heard so much about. After traveling for so long on the Chinese-Tibetan borderland, I have not seen nor heard anything about other human-like beings in the region. As to the giant footprints allegedly seen and photographed by explorers, there is a simple explanation. I believe they are the footprints of the nude llamas. When they walk with their bare feet on the snow, the snow melts around the print, making it larger. Then the prints freeze and lead people to believe they are made by giants. So apparently the answer is yes, and we have solved the mystery of the abominable snowman. So Fate Magazine um, in the 1950s was a real mix of a lot of different topics. It wasn't just flying saucers. It wasn't just ghosts. It was both of those things and cryptids and just weird historical ideas and lots and lots of reader letters. You wouldn't see a lot of news broken um, in fate, hard to break news in something that comes out every two months, but you'd see lots and lots of stories and narratives and accounts that would be part and parcel of the books you'd buy about these topics throughout the 1950s and 60s. And afterwards, the Steep Rock story is a good example of how stuff that got its first widespread audience and fate would find second, third, fourth, etc. homes in other publications, um, which is excellent and necessary in a pre-digital publication world where you couldn't easily get your hands on back issues of magazines like Fate. So Fate, 70 years going strong, um, a wonderful publication. And the thing about Fate is every issue you'd buy on the newsstand or at a garage sale or what have you, every issue you'd find would have something you would find interesting, even if it was just you know some of the ads. But overall, wonderful stuff. Thanks for listening. You can find old issues of fate in various places. I think I found most of mine at the Internet Archive. Um, Lots of good stuff at the Internet Archive, as there always is. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media LLC, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.